Welcome to, to the talk. Um, Mark is quite correct, I, I do enjoy giving talks. Normally they, they, they give me a great deal of unalloyed pleasure. I can't quite say the same for this because this is a very serious subject. It's actually a very sad story. But nevertheless, I think it's also a very important story to be told because as, as Mark says, we're now winding up the centenary commemorations and anniversaries of the First World War. We, we think a lot, quite rightly, about the people who served in the armed forces who were killed. But also, I feel very strongly that there are other people who were really almost equally victims of that war, and that's, that's their loved ones who lost them. And so what I'm wanting to do today is to tell a, a story, a very poignant, a very sad, a very human story of just one family in Folkestone and their losses in the First World War. Uh, so just by way of setting the scene, here are, here are a few figures of First World War casualties. I've seen quite a range of casualty figures for the people in the armed services who were killed. And in fact, the 700,000 that I have put up there is really the lowest figure. So that's for British service people and what we would now call, I think, the Commonwealth service people. So that's the minimum number of people who were killed. I have seen numbers that go up to 900,000. Then also we have the 1.6 million who were wounded or injured or permanently disabled in some way. And I believe that that takes into account not only the people who suffered physical injury, but those who suffered shell shock and other mental illnesses as well. And an, another figure which I, I believe is, is perhaps not so often thought of, and that's the number of civilian casualties that there were in the First World War. And when, I, I was actually surprised at how many there were. So, and civilian casualties, I think, in this instance also includes men who served in the Merchant Navy, so it's perhaps not quite how we would necessarily think of the figure of civilian casualties now. But that was over 110,000 people died, of whom, and I, and I was quite horrified by the next figure, 100,000 died as a direct result of food shortage or malnutrition. And this, this is in the 20th century. And finally, just over 1,400 people were killed in air raids. And again, when, when you compare that to the figures in the Second World War, that maybe doesn't sound so many, but it's, it's more than enough. I mean, to my mind, one person would have been more than enough. Um, but 1,400, and I shall say a little bit about that later on, because we were very directly affected by that in Kent. So, you know, I'm afraid this, this, is, not a, this is not a jolly talk. Um, and I mean, if, if, if anyone gets upset and wants to leave, I would quite... I would quite understand. So these are the, the people who are, are at the core of our story. Um, they're called William and Rosa Orchard. And in fact, if, I think if I was going to have to think of an alternative title for this talk, it would probably be something like um, The Pity of War and the Power of Archives, because they're, they're not famous people at all. Um, they're a couple who lived in Folkestone just before the First World War 
And the reason that we know their story, and I can tell you it, is simply because we acquired a very small collection of archives that was brought together by one of their sons, Arthur Orchard. And Arthur lived in Folkestone for a very long time. He, he died in 1975. And when his house was cleared, this small group of archives, small group of letters, um, ephemera and photographs that he'd brought together was found and was given to, as it then was, the East Kent Archive Centre. And so it's purely because of that chance find that we know this story and that we actually know how William and Rosa were affected by the First World War in a very direct and a very personal way. So the way I'm going to approach this is first of all to talk a little bit about the family and then I will say something about Folkestone before the First World War. Then we'll look in a little more detail at the military service of the men in the Orchard family who did serve in the military, uh, which, which actually was all of them. And then finally I will come to the core of the talk, what actually happened to them, and then just look briefly at how they were remembered and commemorated. So I sh should actually say that um, William, although I've, I've said they're from Folkestone, they were, they lived at 100 Radnor Park Road, but William and Rosa, and indeed their children, weren't originally from Kent. So William was born in 1865 in Southampton, and Rosa was a couple of years younger. She was born in 1867 in Salisbury. And they were first cousins. Their mothers were sisters. And by 1871, so when he was, was really still quite small, um, William was actually living with his maternal grandparents in Salisbury. So I don't, don't know this for a fact, but my feeling is that William and Rosa actually knew each other very well from a very young age. And quite possibly that they were childhood sweethearts even. Um, they, they got married in 1888. So William then was... I think just over 21, and Rosa was 19. And they had altogether five sons and three daughters, and all of them were born in Salisbury. The family was certainly still living in Salisbury in 1901, because they're there in the census. But by 1911, William and Rosa and their youngest daughter and two youngest sons had actually moved to Sidcup. And sometime between 1911 and 1913, when William is listed in Parsons Directory of Folkestone, they moved from Sidcup to Folkestone to live in 100 Radnor Park Road. And so for the, the period that the First World War story covers, that's where they were living. So this is, this is William and Rosa's eldest son. Um, William Samuel. There, there are a lot of Williams in this story, but, but luckily his family tended to call him either Will or Bill, so I shall probably call him Will during the talk. Um, by 1911, he and his next brother, Arthur, were actually living in lodgings in Folkestone, and they, they worked... Um, Will was a, a manager in a tobacco dealer's, and Arthur was an assistant to a tobacco dealer. Um, Will is the only one of the sons who was actually married before the First World War. And he, he actually married two days before, the, before war was declared. So he married on the 2nd of August 1914. 
to Susanna Rose Biscoe, who, who was from Folkestone. And they had two, two children, um, a son, another William. Um, he was William Sturdy Orchard. And I think, think to avoid confusion between the other Williams, his family always referred to him by his second name, Sturdy. And he, he was born in December 1914. And then a couple of years later, they had a daughter, Joyce, who was born in July 1916. And we'll, I'll show you a picture of them in a moment. So that's, that's Will and his family. Now, sadly, the, the one brother that I don't have a picture of is Arthur, who was the second son, who was born in 1888. Um, so there are no pictures of Arthur, but this is the third son, George, who was born on 26th of April, 1890. And with, with most of the photos, you'll see that I've put a circa date because I don't really know exactly when they were taken. But this one we know a precise date for because... George sent it to his brother Arthur and wrote on the back of it, um, this was taken on the 5th of December, 19, no, the 8th of December 1915, which was his nephew's first birthday, and it was also the date on which George joined the army. And I think he, he felt he, he wanted perhaps to have just one last photograph of himself in civilian clothing that he sent to his brother. Um, there, there was a, another son, Frederick, who unfortunately was born in 1892 and died in 1894. And then here on the left we have the youngest of the brothers. Um, as you can see from the caption, his, the names that he was given were Alfred Harold. Um, for, for, for some reason, and I, that, that reason is, is, is now lost, um, he was called Tom. And he, he was the youngest. He was born on the 12th of October, 1899. And then these are, this is Rosa with Tom and her three daughters. Um, so at the top left is the youngest daughter, who was called Lillian. Um, she was born in January 1898. Then the other, other one standing is Beatrice. She was born in 1893. And at the front, and looking very, very much like her mother, um, is Rosina, and she was born in December 1894. So that's, that's the members of the Orchard family. So now just have a, a little look at Folkestone. Um, I hope, hope this is clear because I was wanting to, to do this with my laser pointer and then I realised that the laser pointer doesn't show up on this screen. Um, so, so I've had to do it with, with red lines and, and blotches. Um, the big red blotch at the top left is Radnor Park and that's, that's near where the orchards lived, they lived in Radnor Park Road and the, the other sites that I've marked are to do with things that happened in Folkestone during the First World War so the, the smaller red blob lower down and to the centre is what later became the site of the War Memorial in Folkestone and we'll have a look at that later then the diagonal red line leading up from that um, has, has no name on this map of 1906, but again, it, it was named after the First World War and it was called the Road of Remembrance. And the reason for that is because so many of the troops who were embarking from Folkestone walked down that road towards Folkestone Harbour. And then 
Finally, the other red diagonal line marks the site of Tontine Street. And Tontine Street is very significant because it was the site of an air raid that I will say a little bit more about in a moment. So I'm just now going to, to put up a few of our postcards to, to give you an idea of what Folkestone looked like just before the First World War. Um, so that's, that's quite a nice one. That's the beach and the beach promenade. And this is on, on the top of the Lees, and that's the, the bandstand on the Lees. Now, I've put in a, a couple of the harbour, not, not just because of the significance of the harbour in general and the significance of the harbour in the First World War, but we've seen that, that Tom Orchard was the only one in naval uniform. And I, I actually think, either before he came to Folkestone or subsequently, I think he was really, really bitten by, by the sea. And so I, I can imagine that when he had the time, he would actually spend quite a lot of his free time down at the harbour looking at the ships and maybe thinking what it might be like actually to be on one of those ships to, to sail to exotic and faraway lands. And there's, there's just a, another of the ships possibly that he might have seen. And then just finally, a couple of images of Radnor Park, which is near where the Orchard family lived. And then finally, I mean, I don't, don't know how clear this is, but I don't know if you, if you can see there's a little red mark in the, in the centre. Well, that, I believe, is number 100 Radnor Park Road. I mean, it's certainly where number 100 Radnor Park Road is now. And um, I, so I believe it's, that's where the orchards lived. Um, Radnor Park itself, the top edge of it is just there. So this is 100 Radnor Park Road as it is now, and certainly it looks as if it, it's a house that might have been around before the First World War. I think it has been modernised because the, I think the, the part on the right-hand side with the front door and the window above looks as if it's much more modern. But then the, the other little photograph, the black and white one on the right, um, showing Rosa and her friend Mrs Beattie from Canada, I think basically just larking about, I'm fairly sure was, was taken in the backyard of 100 Radnor Park Road. Um, I'm, not, I'm not, not quite sure why they're in the backyard, because as, as far as I can see, it looks like Rosa's been making pastry and has made a pie, so I don't know why that photograph was taken in the backyard. But I must say, I, I like it very much, because there are a number of very nice photographs of, of Rosa, some more of which I'll show you, but they're almost all of them very formal studio portraits, and this one is just an informal snapshot, um, and she's, she's not smiling particularly for the camera, I think she, she's just smiling because she and her friend are, are larking about and having fun, which, which is a very, very nice image to have of her. So now I'll just say a little bit about Folkestone in the First World War. And this image, I think, shows soldiers marching down along the top of the Lees, pro probably going to the, towards the Road of Remembrance to go down to the harbour. And uh, we can actually see in the top right of the picture, very faintly in the background, the bandstand. Um, Folkestone was actually a garrison town for a long, long time before the First World War. 
just over three miles from the town centre was Cheriton and Shorncliffe camp was at Cheriton and had been there since the 1790s, since the Napoleonic Wars. And Folkestone, because it was an important port, was almost also a very important point of embarkation for the troops going to, to France and to Flanders in the First World War. From 1915, Shorncliffe camp also became home to the Canadian Army. And as we'll see presently, that was very significant for the Orchard family. And also they, they made both, both William and Rosa, and certainly their, their daughters, made, made friends with quite a number of, of people connected with the Canadian Army. Another aspect of the war in Folkestone was that from the, from the autumn of 1914, there was a great influx of Belgian refugees. And so, so the, these people, I think, you, know, you, you, can, you can see it, they've been through a hard time, but at least now they've arrived safely at Folkestone. A number of the refugees went beyond the town, but equally quite a number stayed in Folkestone and settled in Folkestone. And after a while, there was quite a, a Belgian refugee community in the town. And I'm, I'm glad to say that the town made them welcome. Um, yeah, unfortunately, pro probably... Yes, I think you're too, too far away to see, see the detail in this. But this, this is not just um, um, any old random shot picture. The reason that I picked it is because it says in the, in the little oblong notice, roughly in the centre of the photograph, and we can possibly see that has something written on it. And what it actually has written on it is, in French, we speak French here, and then in what I imagine is Flemish, simply because of one of the words, we speak Flemish here. So I think, well, you know, that's, that's actually very nice. Um, so, so it's either just somebody's actually taken the trouble to learn some French and Flemish to make the refugees welcome, or possibly there were refugees who worked in that shop. But in, I, in either case, I think it's, it's a, a very nice gesture, and I think it, it just shows how welcome the refugees were and how they became part of the Folkestone community. Now, I mentioned briefly at the beginning the number of air raid casualties that there were in the First World War. And Kent, unfortunately, was subjected to air raids from really very early on in the war. I think the first, first air raid on British soil actually took place at Dover on Christmas Eve 1914. And this image relates to possibly one of the worst air raids of the war, which took place at Folkestone on the 25th of May, 1917. And it was a, it was a Friday afternoon. It was leading up to a bank holiday weekend. And although there was no rationing in place yet at, at that time, I think already there were food shortages. And so when people heard that Stokes, the greengrocers, had taken a delivery, they flocked down there to take advantage of it. And so at just after 20 past six, there, there was a big queue outside Stokes's, a lot of women and children, and a German aircraft came over and dropped a bomb, and more than 60 people were killed, and more than 100 injured. And I... I won't give you any detailed descriptions, but, but there are some contemporary descriptions 
from which it's quite clear that it was carnage, and a number of witnesses described it as like a scene from a battlefield. And the photographs are some of the people who were killed in the air raid, and then the, the very closely written type is a list of the people who were killed and some of those who, in, who were injured. Um, the youngest victim was a, well, was a baby boy. He was just a few months old, called Walter Moss. And the oldest was an, uh, an elderly lady called Isabel or Isabella Wilson. And in, in fact, I, I think um, that's probably her photograph in the top row, second from right. And she was 80. Now, again, we, we don't know if the orchards were in any way directly involved in that air raid. Um, you know, it's, it's possible that, that they had friends who were caught up in the air raid. It's, it's possible that, that Rosa had a near miss because actually she used to go to Tontine Street to the post office to collect the separation allowance that she received from her husband. So we don't, we don't know whether she, she did have a near miss or not. There was also a memorial service, an open-air memorial service to the victims on the 3rd of June in Radnor Park. And again, we don't know if any of the orchards went to that, but they lived so close to the park, they, they would have been aware of it, certainly, if nothing else. So, to, to look now at the, the orchard men and their involvement in the war. So, it, it might, might seem a bit strange to, to begin with, with Tom, because he was far and away the youngest. In fact, when, when the war broke out, he was still only 14, because his birthday was the 12th of October. But he was actually the first of the orchard men who joined the armed services. And he joined on the 7th of April 1915, so he was actually just 15 years old, uh, which to my mind is, is shockingly young, but I don't think he was alone in, in joining, joining at such a young age. And it wasn't done by falsifying his age. It was actually possible to serve in the Navy in boys' service, which is what Tom did. And later on he became a telegraphist, which I'm inclined to think was, was perhaps quite a cutting-edge tech job in those days. You know, if, if you think about it, it was only, what was it, something like 1910 that telegraphy played a vital part in the catching of the murderer, Dr Crippen. You know, so, so probably that was quite a cutting-edge thing, and that was why he chose to do it. Uh, Tom, I think, I always, not just because of his youth, but I think because he... He doesn't seem, just looking at his images, so far distanced from us as his brothers do. And I think with his brothers it's partly because of the heavy moustaches, which do look very much of that First World War period, and therefore I think put a little bit of distance between us. But I never feel that with, with Tom. You know, he, he's very youthful, he's, cl he's clean-shaven. Um, if you were to take him out of his naval uniform and put him in, in Week Street in contemporary clothing, I don't think he would look at all out of place. And now the, the next, next of them to join the armed forces was William. And um, yeah, again, I, I think you're probably too far away to see the detail, but you can, I hope, see that there's, he has a badge on his collar. And that, that badge is actually a maple leaf because William didn't join the British armed forces, he joined the Canadian armed forces. And he, he is very well documented. 
there, there must be something like, I think, 40 or 50 pages of his service record on ancestry. And there, there are a number of, of medical reports. But the, the f first thing that, that struck me when I read his service record is that he lied about his age. Um, I mean, he didn't, he didn't need to add any years onto his age, but he actually took quite a number of years off. So he gave his date of birth as the 13th of June 1877. So he, he tried to knock 12 years off his age to get into the army. And according to one of the medical reports, his, the reason that he so wanted to join the army was because he saw an advertisement for a clarinet player. And although most of the time in the census returns, William's occupation is given as greengrocer, at least once it was, it was musician, and I actually think he really wanted to be a musician. But nevertheless, I, I, I just think it's unbelievably drastic that you should reduce your age by 12 years to get into the army so you can be a clarinet player. But nevertheless, that, that is what he did. Um, unfortunately, well, no, not, not unfortunately, but his... I think his age was probably discovered quite, quite soon because I think he, just looking at him, I think he would have found it quite hard to sustain the belief that he was 12 years younger than he was. Um, but also, I, I don't think he was in the, in the best of physical condition. I, I have to say that all the orchard men seem to have been quite small men. Um, we know his height and his weight. He was 5 feet 4 inches tall and he weighed 120 pounds, so 8 stone 8 pounds. And he, he joined in the reserve battalion and he never, he never actually saw any active service overseas, I'm, I'm quite pleased to say. But um, at one point he did serve in the Canadian field artillery and this, this photo must be taken in that period because that's why he's got the, the sort of leather cartridge belt that he's wearing. And then this is, this is George again. My, my feeling is that that was perhaps taken not that long after he joined up. And so I think he's, he's trying, because bear in mind all these were sent to his, to his brother. His brother was already in the army. Arthur, I think, had been in the Territorial Army because he was in something called the 1st 4th Battalion of the Buffs of the East Kent Regiment. But in the summer of 1915, he was sent to India. And so he, he always served in India. George sent him this photograph, and I think he's perhaps trying, trying to look quite military for the benefit of his, what he feels is his more soldierly brother. Uh, George is also well documented on ancestry. He served in the Royal West Surrey Regiment. He, he was certainly over in France by the autumn of 1916 because he was wounded. And again, he was, he was wounded in the spring of 1917. And also, on that occasion, he, he, he did something, unfortunately I don't know what, but he did something as a result of which he was awarded the military medal. And we'll see him in a minute wearing his military medal ribbon. And in April 1918, he was promoted to Lance Corporal, and by that time he was serving in the 7th Battalion of the Royal West Kent Regiment. And finally, back to Will, the eldest son, and this, this is the photograph that my rather grainy first image of him was taken from. And this, this is a, it's a, a very lovely photograph, but actually quite a poignant one as well, uh, because this is, this is Will with his wife and children. So on the left we have his wife, Susanna, 
um, who, who is not quite as young as she looks. I mean, I always think she almost looks school age there. She isn't, she's 21. And she's holding Joyce, the baby, who was born at the end of July 1916, so, so we can make quite a good guess at when this photograph was taken. And in the front is the little boy, Sturdy. And then, of course, we've, on the right we've got Rosa, who is the proud grandmother. Um, and unfortunately, you, you can't, can't see this at all because the distance is too great. But you might just be able to see that, that Rosa has got some sort of... It looks maybe like a pendant that she's wearing that's, that's light against her dark dress. And if you, if you blow that picture up, it's actually it's a white horse. And so Will joined the 10th Battalion of the Royal West Kent Regiment. And the West Kent Regimental Badge was the Invicta horse. So, so I think that what Rosa is wearing is something that's generically known as a, a sweetheart brooch because quite often it was the men's wives and sweethearts who wore them that is based on her son's regimental badge. The 10th Battalion of the West Kent Regiment was what was known as a Pals Battalion, which meant that men from the same community could actually join up and serve together. And that, um, that, was, that was obviously very nice for them, and that, that happened quite a lot in the first couple of years of the war. But a number of, particularly the Northern Pals Battalions, were decimated in the Battle of the Somme in July 1916. I think af after that, there was maybe less emphasis on that kind of Powell's Battalion. But anyway, Will, Will served in Kent's equivalent. And uh, just, just one final photo of George, um, who, who looks completely different with, without his moustache. And he, um, he's actually wearing his military medal ribbon. I'm afraid I, I don't know who the, the younger woman is, but there's another photo of her with George. So, although unfortunately we don't know her name, my guess is that um, she was George's sweetheart. So that's, that's just to give you a bit of an idea of what, how they served in the armed forces. Now, on the 4th of June, 1917, Will wrote to his parents from France. And he, I mean, he addresses it, he says, Dear Mother, Dad and all at home. But I, I think he was very much thinking of Rosa, of his mother, when he wrote it. And he says, In a few days from now, we shall be taking a very active part in what will be one of the biggest pushes of the war. No doubt you will read all about it in the papers. One never knows what is going to happen these days. So I'm taking the opportunity of thanking you with my undying love for the love and kindness you have all shown me. You are the best little mother in the world and your love for me has been a real comfort, I can assure you. And I sincerely hope and pray that we shall all be happy together for many years to come yet. I feel confident over this job and with God's help shall certainly do my best for God, King and country and the dear ones that I love. I can't say more, it would be useless making a book of the same thing over and over again. So I'll now say au revoir and not goodbye, because I hope to see you all once again. May God bless, protect and guide you all is my most earnest prayer. With my best love to you all and best wishes for the future, I remain, dear mother, your ever-loving son, Will. And you know, I just think that's, that's a really nice, re really, really touching letter.
but there, there is actually a very sad reason for uh, having this letter, because that, that, is, that is not Will's original letter in his handwriting. On the 22nd of June, so less than three weeks later, he was killed. And Rosa copied out his last letter and sent it to Arthur in India so that he could see it. And she wrote on it, uh, just down there on the bottom, this is an exact copy of your dear brother's letter, word for word. And Rosa also sent Arthur some other letters about Will's death. Um, one was from one of his comrades, but also someone else who, who he knew from Folkestone because they were serving in a pals battalion. And that's from George Offen. And George wrote to Susanna Orchard to tell her of Will's death. And I, I had always thought that the first news that a bereaved family had of someone's death was when they received a telegram. But in, the, in this case, it was not. It was George Offen's letter that broke the news. So he says, Dear Mrs Orchard, I'm now trying to write you a few lines to express to you my deepest sympathy in your sad loss. I was with Will right through, as you know, and I have lost a chum dearer than any brother could have been. There is just one consolation in knowing that the dear chap did not have any suffering, for he died instantly after he was hit. I will try to explain as near as possible how it happened. I can assure you Will, like myself, took every precaution, but it was to be. We had been carrying rations up to the battalion in the front line and were almost back to our own support trenches when Fritz opened out a very heavy shell fire, catching us out in the open which I will add is very frequent now this pushes on, and a piece of shrapnel caught Will in the back of the head. But he could not have felt anything, for it was fatal in any part thereabouts. We laid him out nicely, and he was taken down the next morning, being buried in a properly dug grave with his cross and name thereon. The name given the cemetery is Bus House, so he will lay undisturbed. That is one good thing, and it is behind the lines now. I will close now, trusting you will bear up under this awful sad loss with my deepest sorrow. And again, that's, that's a, a very, very nice letter, albeit a very harrowing one for them to receive. And Rosa wrote on it, copy of letter from dear boy's chum, which we heard the news from first. And then finally she copied the letter that Will's company commander sent to, to Susanna as well. And that was dated the 3rd of July. So that came, I would imagine he, he should have intended it to have been the first letter that they received, but it wasn't. And he wrote, I regret to inform you that your husband, number 15484, Private William Orchard, was killed in action on June the 22nd, 1917. He had just come from a working party and had almost got to his trench when a shell burst in the vicinity a portion of which struck him in the head, killing him instantly. You cannot imagine how we deplore his loss, for he was a good soldier, an excellent observer and sniper, and in every way endeared himself to the officers and men in his company, by his quiet manner and willingness to do any work he was called upon to do. 
The whole company, officers, NCOs and men, join me in expressing their sincere sympathy to you, to you and yours, in your sad loss. And again, Rosa copied it and sent it to, to Arthur. Now, as well as copy letters, there are some original letters that the brothers sent to each other. And these are two letters that Tom, who was in the Navy, sent out to Arthur. So I'll just, just read um, a couple of extracts. So on the 30th of June, and bear in mind this, this is after his brother had died, but before the family knew of, of Will's death, he wrote, I had a decent time whilst on leave. Only one thing, the time went too quickly. It was good to see the old faces after so long away and hoped to be home again shortly. And this is the bit that amused me. He said, I saw George when I was in Chatham and he looks well, especially with his medal ribbon up. Brackets, some veteran, he's put. Please remember me to all the lads who are with you from Folkestone who I know. And then across the bottom he's written, when are you coming back to England when the war is over? And then on... The 16th of September, he'd gone to a different ship, HMS Contest, and he wrote to Arthur from there. Everyone at home is A1, and Mother is getting over her loss of Bill. She worries more than ever over us, so please write as often as you can, as she looks forward to our letters, and she tells me she has not heard from you for a month now, so I expect mails have been lost. George is now having a rest and is getting on A1, Dad, he has left Shorncliffe now and is in camp at Whitley, Surrey. You will see by the address I'm in another ship in the 4th Destroyer flotilla. If you can manage to drop a few lines, should be pleased to hear from you, as it is about six months since I heard from you. All the girls are in the pink and started their holidays. I'm trying to get Mother to go, too. I shall be home in October. I'm in the home fleet now. So 16th of September, he's, he's still not quite 18. And this is, this is a, another, I think, very, very, very nice photograph of, of Tom. Um, not quite so nice of Rosa. She, look, she looks rather sad and grim there. And my feeling is that this, this photograph was taken after Will had died. And again, she, she's got her white horse brooch very prominently displayed. And the, the ship in front is Tom's new ship, HMS Contest, a destroyer. On the afternoon of the 18th of September, so two, two days after Tom had written that letter, the contest was in the western approaches of the Channel, so sort of between um, the bottom of Cornwall and um, Brittany. And it went to help what I believe is a civilian ship, the steamship City of Lincoln, which had been torpedoed by a German U-boat. But unfortunately the U-boat was still in the vicinity and it torpedoed HMS Contest, and HMS Contest was sunk. And 35 of the men serving on the ship were drowned, and Tom was one of them. And then Rosa sent a, a really desperate, heartfelt telegram to Arthur saying, Tom drowned, Will killed, do come home. So that's, that's two of her sons who have been killed within three months of each other. And I can't begin to think what that would have felt like. So we also have some letters from George. 
and this one was written on the 28th of November 1917 um, and because I think of the, the lapse of time it took for the mail to get from France to India although it's, although it's only late November he's actually writing Arthur his Christmas letter so he says just a few lines hoping you're still keeping in the best of health and to wish you a happy Christmas or as good a one as possible under the present circumstances I'm afraid it will be rather a miserable one at home but let's hope we shall both be home for the next one I wrote you while I was home and hope you received the same I think our dear mother is going on all right now. I expect you notice her letters are more cheerful than they were, and there is no need for you to worry. No doubt you are well informed of the news at home, so there is no need for me to mention anything about that. And on the 12th of March 1918, he wrote to Arthur, I've just received a letter from mother, and pleased to say they are all keeping well. She began to worry, I think, a little about you as she had received no mail, then they all turned up together. I expect you were surprised the same as I was to hear that Lil is getting married. So Lil is the, the sister who is the next oldest sibling to, to Tom. So in 1918, she's 20. She is rather young, but sincerely hope they will be happy together in the future. I'm afraid I shall not be home in time for the wedding, if I'm lucky, it may be a couple of months after. But roll on the time when it's all over. I think it's been on quite long enough. What do you say? It's all a game now, isn't it? What with tickets for this and that, then to be lucky if you get what you want. So at the beginning of 1918, food rationing had been introduced in Britain. I would just as soon be out here as we get no trouble like that. He says, I hope Ruby is keeping well. Give her my love when you write. Uh, Ruby is Arthur's sweetheart. We're in the line at present and having it quite easy. Hardly know there is a war on it so quiet. The weather is simply beautiful, so I have nothing to complain of as long as it lasts. I see by the papers they have been over again with their aircraft and done a little damage. They have not been at home since last May, since the Tontine Street air raid. And I hope they won't. People over there will not know what to make of it when they can rest in peace once again. And this is the, the photograph of Lil's wedding, which took place on the 17th of April 1918. And that's, that's rather a nice one, I think. Both Rosa and William look, look very happy there. Um, unfortunately, their happiness was to be short-lived because on the 26th of April, which was his 28th birthday, George was killed in France, and Rosa sent this telegram to Arthur, announcing the news. Then on the 23rd of May, she, she wrote him a letter from Buxton, which I think was where William was stationed with the Canadian Army. And she wrote, my dear and only boy I have left to me now. Will please God spare you and come back? Poor dear George has been killed on his birthday. It's all too terrible. Three dear boys taken in a year from a devoted mother. I can't bear it. He wrote me the same day as he must have been killed. Oh, what have I done to have all this? 
I do hope you are safe and please God spare you from this terrible, wicked war. With heaps of love and kisses from your ever-hearted, ever-loving and broken-hearted mother. So within less than a year, she has lost three of her sons. So just, just now to look briefly at some of the ways in which they were remembered and commemorated. These are the memorial cards that were produced for each of them. So there's one for, one for Tom, one for Will and one for George. And although obviously they were issued in the names of both William and Rosa, I think because William was away in the army, probably it was to Rosa that the job fell of choosing the design and choosing the, the wording. And I, I, I won't attempt to read out uh, what's, what's written on those because it really is very moving indeed. So that, that was personal commemoration. Of course, there were various kinds of official commemoration as well. Um, one was that all deceased um, service people's families received their medals. So the medals were sent to the next of kin. Um, the two medals on the left are the British War Medal, which is the one with the orange and blue ribbon, and the Victory Medal with the rainbow ribbon. And everyone who served in the First World War had at least those two medals. So Susanna would have received those for Will, and Rosa and William would actually have had two sets, one for Tom and one for George. And probably also William and Rosa would have had George's military medal, which is the medal on the right. And again, I, I don't know whether either Susanna or Rosa did this, but, but some women actually wore their deceased um, husbands or sons' medals at commemorations and at Armistice Day commemorations as well. And the other thing that all the bereaved families received um, was one of these, which is a memorial plaque and there was also um, a letter that, that went with it. And I, I, sh I should say that we certainly know in the case of George, because it's documented in his service record, that both the plaque and the medals were sent to William and Rosa. Um, this is, is a replica, but I've put it up because it does make the design very clear. In the actual plaques, the oblong to the right of the image would actually have had the deceased person's name in it. And then, of course, they, they were also commemorated on, on a num number of official memorials. Um, Will is commemorated here at the Menin Gate at Yeep, which is a, a very, very iconic memorial. It's, it's the one where very often the playing of the last post on um, Remembrance Day is broadcast from. Tom is commemorated here on the Naval Memorial on the hill at Chatham. And he was, although I don't know whether this still exists, also commemorated on this, which is the Memorial for Christchurch School, Folkestone, because for a time he was a pupil there. And he, his is the only name listed under Navy. And George is commemorated here at Posier, which is on the Somme. 
then locally the brothers are all commemorated on the Folkestone War Memorial. Uh, we have in our Folkestone Borough collection these which are the Folkestone glory cards which were used in compiling the list on the War Memorial. And I think also there was, there was there may even still be a separate role of honour. And these cards were compiled using information which was given by the bereaved families. So Rosa sent in information for Will, George and Tom. And then of course Susanna also sent in information for Will. So there are two for Will and one each for George and Tom. And this is the Folkestone War Memorial, which is at the top of the, the Road of Remembrance. This image is taken from our postcard collection, and I don't, don't have a date for it, but I'm, I think that it's almost certainly taken just after the memorial had been dedicated on the 2nd of December 1922, and that all, all the floral tributes you can see in front of it were laid, laid there then. And it's just about possible, I think, to, to see that there are some cards on the floral tributes. I think there were cards with all of them. And the messages on those cards were published in the local papers. And these are, these are broadsheet newspapers. And the, the messages on those cards covers a whole, whole page, five columns of very closely printed type. And so the, the, the messages from Rosa and from Susanna are there. Um, Susanna wrote, in ever-loving memory of my three dear sons, William, George and Tom Orchard, never forgotten, also from their brother and three sisters. And Susanna wrote, in ever-loving memory of my dear husband, Private William Samuel Orchard, Royal West Kent Regiment, also two dear brothers, George and Tom, from his loving wife and children, Sturdy and Joyce. Um, so... All three brothers are commemorated on that memorial, but because of the way that the, the names are listed, they're, they're, not on, they're not together on the panels. So there's a separate panel for people who served in the Navy, and even for people who served in the Army. They are, the names are separated according to the regiment in which they served, so their names are not together there. But, and again, I, I'm sorry, Rosa and William or Susanna who sent these names in, they are all commemorated together on the memorial at Salisbury, which just did a straight list of all the names, and so that the three of them are together on that. Um, so Su Susanna never remarried, and she died in 1963. Sturdy died in Dover in 1992, and Joyce died as recently as 2009 in Southampton. Um, Arthur came home safely from India, married Ruby in 1920, and they had three children, Harold, Raymond and Rosemary. Rosa died on the 24th of May 1924 in the Royal Victoria Hospital aged only 56, and my feeling is that if you can die of a broken heart, then ultimately that's probably what she died of. And William died on 7th of August 1931 at the age of 66. And they're, they're both buried in Folkestone Municipal Cemetery. So, so they, they are, their sons are commemorated, they are commemorated, but my feeling is that perhaps the 
most poignant commemoration of them is the letters and the photographs that we've just been looking at. 